1: provocative and fun conversations among high profile public figures and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. I'm Corey Nathan, your host with co-host and dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. Hi, Pop.
2: Hey.
1: Hey. And we are talking politics and religion without killing each other. And if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes, Apple or wherever you get your your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn and all over the interwebs. Today's guest is Rabbi Mark Blazer, Rabbi at Temple Beth Ami a regular contributor to the signal of Santa Clarita Valley here in Southern California, as well as, and forgive me for not realizing this earlier, it looks like an expanded role with JLTV, Mark. Yep. That's awesome. First of all, how are you? How's your family? How's everybody getting through it?
0: We've been really, really lucky. Um, I think we're really, like a lot of people trying to make the best out of, uh, um, well, I don't think anybody could <clears throat> could have imagined that if they, if you had been told what you'd be doing this time this year that you'd be uh, you'd be um, you wouldn't believe it. And so I, I think we're doing remarkably well actually as a, as a family as a community our, our, our synagogue, our temple Bethany community is really able to um, has been able to navigate this I think better than some, religious communities because of this other aspect of my life that you were talking about, which is my um, added roles at, uh, at JLTV, primarily the Jewish Life Television Network, and primarily through our Jewish Life Foundation, which is our nonprofit arm, which helps create programs and and helps the um the religious and spiritual and educational content for, for the network, but also works on some other projects too, nonprofit projects, uh, partnerships. Uh, it was the organization, uh, Jewish Life Foundation, the nonprofit was started a little over 20 years ago by my father, Phil, blessed memory. And then in the last couple of years, uh, since I've gotten more involved, it has, you know, it, it's helped blend some of the other work that I do in the community in particular, you know, particularly in uh, Santa Clarita, I've been able to leverage some of that to help our community. Because now in these last months, being in a virtual space, we get to create services and and bring in uh, voices and speakers and uh, events that we're able to bring to Santa Clarita, which is the far reaches, as you know, of, of, of uh, Los Angeles County, yeah. we're able yeah. to use some of that to get to, to bring everything together, so we're actually doing really, really well because of you know being able to use some of the the synergy as we call it, but really just sharing and and uh, building on the resources that we have. So yeah, we're we're looking forward to going back to to normal, whatever that means. But we're we're looking to hopefully use some of what we've learned and gained in the last few months and and use that for the future too. That like everything else, hopefully there's a there's a growth that we can take out of this.
1: Yeah. You, you mentioned your dad, Phil Blazer, who just passed away this August. My condolences. Thank your you. dad was a big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was. And it's tough. It's a tough legacy to uphold because again, I was always kind of hesitant to step foot in exactly the same places that he that he was in, um, especially in life, you know, he because he he was his whole life was the Jewish community. That's all he cared about and all he thought about. And he lived for the Jewish community. He didn't do it for fame or for for financial success. He really did it because something inside of him called him to to just help that help the community. And, and his role model was really Theodore Herzl, who Came from even a more um, ambivalent and uh, assimilated family than he did. He came from a very American, uh, you know, grew up in the 50s, um, came very, you know, post-war situation. His his dad, actually, my grandfather, who I was very close with, uh, came back from World War II in 1946. And my dad was was two years old. My dad was born when he was away. He didn't see his dad. And he he grew up in that post-war uh, society that that dealt with the Holocaust, that dealt with the world I grew up in. But yeah, you're a little little younger, but basically this, yes, it's the same. He had a very West Coast upbringing, and I think you had a definitely a um, Brooklyn, a, a definitely a more traditional or or. Uh, a very east coast uh, like you said not even east coast brooklyn upbringing which was in it, uh, which as we know is, is, is <laughs> true if you want to drill down yes even more so benson but i i i um i when I look back at his life and, and the things that he was able to do, you know, he, he was able to, to do what he did because of people who were the generation before people like his father, or or again, the people in the Jewish community, my grandfather was involved with the Jewish community, but obviously there were people who helped Israel exist in the 1940s, uh, and, and who literally fought for the Jewish state. Those were his heroes. And those were, those were the people that he was picking up from. And, um, our uncle Saul.
1: Yeah, we in our first conversation, my dad and I talked about our my grandmother Ronnie's Ronnie's mother her 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 uncle. Uncle. Yeah, uh, Uncle Saul in particular, who was very very active. Twenty five years prior to the formation of Israel, in the um, in the movement that eventually led to the to the Jewish the, state.
2: The reason they came to America at the moment they did is because Saul was about to be arrested by the Bolsheviks. Zionist activities. So there you go. I have a question for you, Mark. At what point in your life did you know you were going to be a rabbi and what brought you to that decision?
0: So now that I've had 25 years to think about that question more deeply or, you know, I could have told you 25 years ago what it was, and it hasn't changed that much. But one of the things that I've I've thought about because people ask you that, you know, why did you choose this path, and how old were you when you made that decision? So the weird thing was was that when I was five or six, was when it literally when I start I started it, uh, at a Jewish day school that literally had just started. I was I was in the second class, first second class of 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 this new Jewish day school. It's now called. Heschel Day School, and it's a great community school in, in the valley, San Fernando Valley. But when I started in that school, and so I started in day school, my first 10 years of education were in a community day school, not a, not an orthodox school by any stretch of the imagination, very community, mostly reform and conservative and really unaffiliated families. From an early age, people would say, oh, you have to be a rabbi one day. And, and I, I really, I thought it was strange because it wasn't what I wanted to do at all. Um, and I thought, like being a rabbi meant I had to do this. I had to do that. Uh, my my image of what a rabbi was 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 not something that I was interested in doing. And so, um, and I and I had you know really great rabbinic role models, but I I didn't see them as people. I saw them as you know people who just you know must talk to God or something when they weren't talking to uh, to us. And, um, and I thought their lives must be pretty strange. And, <laughs> and I think actually, for some of them, they were. And even for at a Jewish day school, I was obsessed with Jewish stuff. And so I remember in my graduating, you know, in our uh, ninth grade, our graduating class, which was finishing middle school at the time. I remember, you know, they do like, what if, you know, what if this happens to different people? And so the what if for Mark Blazer is what if Mark Blazer becomes the Pope? Because, (laughs) because, and I realized, because even amongst my Jewish friends, there was like, this guy is way too into, and it wasn't just religion. It wasn't just Torah, uh, which I was interested in, but it was, you know, what's, who's the Jewish baseball player? Who's, who's the Jewish politician? Who's, you know, it was, and it was obviously because of my parents, but um, but I really was interested in it. And so I didn't really think, you know, you don't think that your interests are different from other people's until like people just keep telling you over and over again. That's not that's not what I'm thinking about as much as you are. So when I finally, when I went to college, I kept drawing, I kept being drawn into things that I liked, which were Jewish things.
1: Was this at UCSD?
0: Yeah, UC San Diego. So so I, I if you would ask me, up until the time I graduated UCSD, I had one goal, which was to do to follow in my father's footsteps. I, I I literally thought like he would hand the company to me and then I would run with the company. Well, my dad was a young guy. I was, you know, he was 20. He was uh, 24 when I was born. And so and again, you know, like like you, you have a very relatively, you know, you have a young dad, right? And so, you know, I did. I didn't really think about the consequences that I finished college at at, uh, 21 or whatever. My dad was 45. He wasn't going to retire. He wasn't (laughs) stepping aside. And uh, I worked for him for about a year after I graduated college. But I was like, I can't, we can't share the same exact space. And and what was interesting is when I was in college, I started studying uh, with Richard Friedman, who's the author of Who Wrote the Bible and is one of the premier Bible scholars in the country. And he really encouraged me to, to study uh, further and to, to study towards a PhD in, in biblical studies. And I and I actually enrolled in, in that uh, once I realized that I can't share the same space as my dad. So I actually moved back to San Diego about a year after I finished, I moved back and I'd already started dating Tracy, my wife, and I knew that I was going to marry her. And I said, I said to myself, and as I was with Tracy, I said, you know, if this is the path I'm going to go down and the ac- a path of academia. You know, it may mean that when I finish this program, which by the way, was a seven year program uh, after seven years, you know, we might travel. I might be going to Texas for a few years and then maybe I'll get a job somewhere else. But the the chance of me being in in UC San Diego as a professor is pretty small. And as a matter of fact, one of my professors is still a professor at UCSD. Friedman went on to be the head of the Judaic Studies Department a few years ago at Georgia. But I'm like, no one's going to leave you know, UCSD, why why would anybody leave La Jolla? And so I I started studying. I also started my own Jewish radio program in San Diego, uh, Sunday mornings, like my dad had in LA. It's called Sunday Brunch. And so I was doing a lot of what I imagined that I could do, but I I knew I couldn't. And and my wife knew, and and also my wife didn't love the idea of moving around and changing places every few years uh, in in the role in, in a, as a role of, of, of being a professor and her being a, the wife of a professor. And so we really when we knew we were getting married and we knew that this was the path we were going to share together. And I knew what she was like. I finally made the decision. I, I I remember exactly the moment I was walking in around the apartment in San Diego and I was thinking to myself, what am I going to you know, am I going to continue trying to do what my dad did or Well, you know, how am I going to do this? And it just finally hit me. I said, you know, I I, I'm going to do what everybody has always told me to do, which is become, you know, is is enter the rabbinate and figure out a way to do what I want to do within as a rabbi. And I and I talked to my dad, and my dad said, well, just do it online, because my dad really didn't feel that degrees were where you studied and all that kind of. He didn't really like i said uh, i said many times he did not value education by itself he he values education but do, in doing doing stuff too so he said you got to start working you ha- if you want to be a rabbi fine but you got to you got to start working in a congregation and uh, or start doing whatever you want to do. And I and I didn't think that I was going to be a congregational rabbi. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be able to uh, to work with people of all ages. I didn't want to just work with college students. I love the idea of working with college students, but I did a little student teaching and I and I saw that the, the students, uh, you know, would come up to me after class. And I was TAing for Friedman and for David Noel Friedman, the the uh, Anchor Bible editor. I was tutor, I was TAing for really great people. Even as an undergraduate, I was given the opportunity to do that. And I realized that the students would come up to me and ask me after class, "Is that going to be on the test?" What's a... and I realized I, that I don't that I don't want to do. I don't want to teach people who are literally there to get a grade. And I thought that's not the purpose of Torah. The purpose of Torah is not what what grade am I getting right now. It's what grade am I getting in life? You know, the big grade, you know, and I thought to myself, I want people to come to me and say, you think this is on the final exam? Not the final exam in, in March or in in June. Is this on the final exam that I get when I go to to my next place. Right. Yeah. That's the final exam I want to help people with. And so that's why I decided that, um, that it's going to be the rabbit and not, and not as a, as a professor, but, but I, again, I respect the the academics and, and, and my dad's goal of me getting out there and, and started Start to, to work. I, I took to heart, and so I, I I looked at where I wanted to study, and most importantly, I knew that my wife would support me in this work in the sense that she would be a good, she'd be a good, a uh, good Robinson. Robinson. and I. And she really, really is an amazing Rebbetson. I could not do what I do. And I've said it many times, and I've said it in synagogue, and I've said it at High Holidays. I've said it in front of everybody. And I'll say it here in front of everybody. I could not do what I do without my wife. It, impossible.
2: We have to explain to Corey and the other Christians what a Rebbitzin is. Oh,
1: come <laughs> on, Give me a little bit of
0: credit here. So, a Reb- <laughs> so yes, so a Rebbetson is a very important position. It's the it's the rabbi's wife. And for centuries, the Rebbetson has really, in some cases, has been is as important, if not in some cases more important, is the glue to the community. Well, interestingly, when women became rabbis 30, 40 years ago, that role diminished in the sense that the expectation that a rabbi's wife had to do things, that, that people started saying no, because when rabbis' wives... Uh, became husbands, people didn't expect the rabbi's husband to work at the synagogue all the time and to be the sisterhood director and to get the oneg ready and everything else. So that diminished it in and, 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 and a good way. And I talked, and, and by the way, very importantly, one of the people that I talked to about becoming a rabbi was my own rabbi, Rabbi Rothblum from dot Ariel in the Valley. And I said to him, you know, I'm really hesitant to do this because I don't know what it's going to mean to my family. It's not a fair thing to drag them into this and at the time it was just my fiance at the time tracy and he said you know what changed for this and i know because you know i know that family issue was was an issue for him he said when women became rabbis they demanded a separation between their family life and their and their work life and so i i i took that to heart and uh, and it made me feel more comfortable with my decision to to enter the rabbinate and, uh, and I knew that, that that being said, as much as she wouldn't be expected to do things, that she likes to do things, and, and because she's so motivated to do it, that this would be a, a great thing for her and a great thing for us. The only question was, what would it mean to our yet- uh, to exist children, because that's not something that they get to take part in. That's not something that they get to have uh, any say over the decision. And they, it is a tremendous stress. And uh, the expectations for the children of clergy is a real issue. Uh, and it's still an issue. So as much as Rebbetson, the Rebbetson title and role has diminished, the, 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 the stress on the kids has, has changed, but it, it hasn't gone away.
2: I'm, I'm, a, I'm guessing that you chose the path of the reform rabbi as opposed to orthodox, because that's the that, that was your family history. And I was interested in exploring some of the inevitable conflicts of being a rabbi in the reform movement.
0: Well, OK, so first of all, my family did not have tradition, uh, did not did not have a reform background. They were conservative for three or two or three generations, actually really involved with conservative synagogues in Minnesota. Then here in Los Angeles, as my father's family moved here, my uh, mother's family lived in Minnesota. And then um, she also grew up and she actually grew up most of the time in Chicago, but her mother went to Road in, in um in the South side of Chicago every week for her whole life, uh, every Friday and Saturday. Very involved in the conservative movement. My grandparents were actually married at a conservative synagogue, actually Anshe Chesed in, in New York, but, uh, and then my other grandparents were were married at a conservative synagogue in the uh, 1940s. So what's the difference between being conservative, reform, Orthodox. What, what are the differences? Well, I would say that that for my family at least, and for for most American Jews, conservative Judaism was kind of a a soft landing place for people who were really Orthodox, who grew up Orthodox, but who didn't find the Orthodox lifestyle as easy to manage when they were in America, but they still didn't want to. And, and again, there was obviously other historic reasons for it, but that they they felt comfortable in kind of a in a space that was still very uh, respectful of tradition and, and not looking to uh, assimilate as fast where there's a reform movement really was uh, and came out of the German Jewish community was really looking at philosophically trying to be as, um, Contemporary as modern, uh, the conservative movement. Has changed a lot over the years, and so has the reform movement. The movements have actually moved closer, and so to think about what's going to happen in the future, they probably will be unified, um, and maybe even faster than normal because of this COVID situation being a stressor on the institutions. Uh, they could wind up being there could be wind up being one movement. There's a couple stumbling blocks on that, but but the differences between them are minimal now. And um, and, and my and my sense is that both movements are moving closer to orthodoxy you traditionalism than they were when I was a kid. They are, though the conservative movement is never going to uh, move. I think the conservative movement has not moved closer to tradition than it was 50 years ago, um, or maybe, maybe, maybe. Reform movement certainly has. Reform, reform movement definitely has. So you had the conservative movement used to kind of be the comfortable place between reform and, and, and orthodoxy. It's not it's not so comfortable anymore because um, the differences and it's not just a cultural, but uh, not just religious and cultural. It's also political. Those issues are becoming more and more, uh, more and more. Defining and to some extent exclusive, but the the differences between reform and conservative used to be well, used to be more of those political and social differences. That reform synagogues tended to be older uh, Jewish communities, wealthier Jewish communities, uh, more established Jews, Jews who had been here for two or three more generations, and the conservative communities were more of the of what we call the greenhorns, the new people that came to the community uh, and still spoke Yiddish and still uh, had had uh, deeper ties to the old world. Um, those differences are gone now. I mean, most people don't even know that those used to exist in the reform and conservative movements. Today, the movements are separated. Uh, reform and conservative Judaism is separated by one issue, which is the issue of, inter, of interfaith marriage. Uh, reform Judaism is more accepting of it, almost universally accepting of it. Not completely, but, but more accepting of it, whereas uh, conservative Judaism still has, has drawn a line in the sand and said that's not something that we're willing to accept. Uh, there's definitely movement you know within within the conservative movement to be more accepting of that and to kind of cross the final threshold that that divides the movements but i'm not sure i don't i that that is still a very real difference in the sense So, so,
2: so 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 this is something i struggled with personally that i assume a rabbi would struggle with even more I've become much more observant over the last 15 years to the point where I'm almost Orthodox. And to the non-Jewish people out there, what that means is I eat kosher now. Um, I try to observe Shabbos, although I drive to synagogue, which is a no-no in the Orthodox movement and other stuff. But as a person who was an assimilated Jew and really didn't think much about God for the first 55 years of my life, and I'm 73 now, I struggle with accepting the Bible and the Torah as inerrant. I struggle with really believing that God wrote the Torah. And I'm
0: wondering how you
2: deal with that.
0: So... um but well, but i want to i just want to get to one other thing which touches on this for me i never thought of myself i never thought of myself as a reform rabbi i'm not a member of the reform rabbinic movement so i don't speak on behalf of reform judaism one of the biggest issues for me was i don't like movements i don't like the the artificial separation of movements i also by the way don't like political labels and and uh, I, I, I move back and forth between political parties, which I know we can touch on later too. I don't like labels because to me, if you're going to label yourself something, then that's something that you're willing to defend, that you're willing to, in some cases, defend with your life. There are very few labels that I'll take on for myself. Uh, Jewish is definitely one of them. Uh, being a father being um being a Zionist, being a husband, being a Dodger fan. <laughs> a pretty a pretty pretty much all my whole life. You know, not my whole I literally I don't remember a time not loving the Dodgers. I love the Vikings too. Uh those are those are labels that I enjoy having or need to have or I or I I'm willing to fight for. The other ones, uh not so much. One of, the, one, of, one of the great teachers of Judaism over the last 50 years is Yitz Greenberg, a modern Orthodox rabbi from New York, and, and one of the guys who kind of pioneered interreligious religious dialogue and, and, uh, and intra-religious dialogue as well. But he is the founder of the organization CLAL, the National Center of Jewish Le- Le- Learning Leadership. And he, he said uh, famously, and it's, it's actually become a famous phrase, he says, I don't care what movement you're a part of and lo- as long as you're embarrassed by it. And I, I always thought that that was a really wonderful, humble statement, but really powerfully true. Which is, um, I'm not willing to go to the mat for any of these movements in the sense that uh, I'm. I I think they all have important things to teach, but I also think that they all have um, artificial boundaries that are completely unnecessary, and again, are are holding back the Jewish community from reaching its full potential. Not terribly i don't want to I, these are not huge weights on us but they are weights and so they're not necessary and so i don't i don't really like them and if you had asked me 50 years ago and now i can say 50 I'm in my mid 50s almost i can literally say that if you had said that you'd be a, a rabbi at a reform synagogue which is what i say i don't say i'm a reform rabbi i'm a rabbi at a reform synagogue i would have said impossible it was the only movement that i couldn't see myself in the issue that i'd have with or with, with orthodoxy as you said or with or with um most forms of of I mean really all almost universally is this idea of Torah from Sinai, that the literal word of the Torah is uh inerrant and comes from from Mount Sinai. And I, I have an I do have an issue with it for several reasons. One, because I understand where it comes from. I understand where the desire to have that fundamentalist approach to text comes from but I think it really misses the point and it really doesn't allow for one of the greatest Jewish traditions which is the many many ways of looking at Torah. Now, one could say yes, we have 70 faces of the Torah according to the rabbis, Shivat Panim that there's 70 different ways, Shivim Panim that there's that there's so many different ways of looking at the, the Torah. But if one of those is not that the Torah was written by people I can't, that's not, I'm not, that's one of my ways of looking at the Torah. It's not my only way, but one of the ways that I understand Torah is by looking at the, uh, looking at the, um, at the authorship. And that's one of the things I learned with, with Richard Friedman. He gave me kind of a better understanding of it. Um, he gave me some of the tools to, to understand that. But it really helped my understanding because I never, I never was told or, or had to believe that the Bible was, was inerrant and, and literally directly from God. But I didn't really understand why and I didn't and I didn't have that language to explain it. I don't spend a lot of time dealing with it. And actually, that's one of the reasons I didn't become a professor because as much as I enjoy thinking about that and trying to use that as, a, as another skill, it's not the big issue. And as a matter of fact, Richard Friedman, my teacher, of Bible and who wrote the Bible, his last words of who wrote the Bible were, it's not who wrote the Bible, but who reads the Bible. Mm. And so his answer actually drove me away from doing that for my whole life. So I'll step back and, and occasionally, like I did Wednesday night in my Torah study class, I had to do a little biblical authorship. I had to do a little of what we call the documentary hypothesis. I don't do it a lot. It's a rabbit hole that I don't go down. But when you read the story of Noah, and last week, the story of creation, and you see the the parallel stories, it helps understand and explain some of the contradictions. The rabbis wrote wonderful midrashim. They wrote wonderful explanations to rectify and to synthesize these things, which I love. And I love teaching those. But there also are certain things where if I don't turn to the documentary hypothesis, I don't say, well, that's clearly written by one author and that's written by the other. I get hung up on on it and, and it doesn't help. It actually hurts the understanding of the story. If you say, look, here's two versions of the story. In one story, a raven goes back and forth across the earth and makes the flood go away. In another, he sends out three times once it comes back once it comes back with an olive branch and once it doesn't come back right those are two different stories they're woven together but if you don't read the story as two separate stories it makes the raven look like he doesn't care not at all The I I actually go away
2: I actually agree with you but as a person who's becoming more observant and more committed to the idea of God how do you justify or rationalize the fact that Torah is written by men, but it's not transactional.
1: It's um, transactional.
2: It's not something that anybody can say, Oh, I like this. And I like that, but I don't like this. and I don't like that. And it changes over time. And, um, how can it be a foundational guide to core values that don't change? If it's just another piece of literature, like anything else,
0: but, but see I, that's, that's where, that's where you jumped, you jumped, you jumped the shark, you jumped everything yeah. because it doesn't just go from the, the choice. It's not, it's not, there's not two choices. That's like saying, if you don't, if you don't like uh, ice cream, then you don't like anything for dessert. It, it, they're, they're not, there's, those are not, it's not a logical there's not a logical connection between that your point which is a, which is an important point which is does the torah have authority if it's not the literal word of god that's a question now that's a question that people have to come to terms with
2: um, that's the question i was really
0: asking but you said it better than i did
1: let me pipe in here because you've been asking this question now for 20 years and it's not a, I, I don't think it's a sufficient question so because if you're reading the Song of Solomon, and you're saying it or, or, or um, Psalms. I think Torah is in a different situation
2: than the Song of Solomon. Because
1: if you're reading Leviticus versus the first 12, uh, you know, versus Genesis, most of Genesis, those two books are doing Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is doing. So it's in certain chapters is doing something very different than than the uh the origin stories you know yeah. and and by the way once you get to sinai i've had this conversation with guys at uh, friends of mine at masters um you know a bunch of people I, I went to church with for a long time very
2: fundamentalist christians
1: yeah i mean to them seven literal 24-hour days you, you have to start and end there and here's here's my here, here's my caveat. Let's just concede for the sake of argument that there was, you know, one to two million people at the foot of Mount Sinai after you count up all the kids in the uh, three million. Think? But who's counting? Who's count What? One point two million?
0: million? Three depends, million. Depends on, <laughs> depends on what. But anyways, go on. Yes. Anyway,
1: so let's just concede that there were. A, a couple million people at the foot of Mount Sinai and the voice of God boomed down. Everybody heard those first few words from the mouth of God, literally like this is literally just for the sake of argument, let's concede that this is and God in the beginning, you know, uh, and the first day. right. I guarantee you not a single one, if they were Jews, that is, um, not a single one of those Jewish people at the foot of Mount Sinai said, I wonder if he's talking about a literal 24 hour day. (laughs) You know, if if we're reading that story, the power of that origin story, and we're still sitting here two, two, three, how many thousands of years later talking about it's a literal 24 hour day. You're missing the damn point. No, excuse me, not the damn, uh, the opposite of the damn. You're uh-huh. missing the point. That's it. That's not the point of the. There's a lot more to glean from that story than arguing about seven literal 24. And by the way, he's the creator God. He created time. So if he wanted to create it with a snap of his fingers or her fingers or whatever, that's that's fine, too. If he wanted to do it over millennia, that's fine, too. He's God. I'm getting very excited about this issue.
0: So that is part of what makes Torah so amazing. And so when you think about the fact that thousands of years later, whether it was by the hand of human beings or the hand of uh, of Moses through God, the fact that we're still having these arguments and discussions proves how holy it is now. Um, and by the way, to get back to the other point, so here's the here's the Bibles that are on my desk right now. I have the commentary of the Torah written by my my professor Richard Friedman, which is his explanation of the Torah, uh, commentary of the Torah, his translation with a little bit of documentary hypothesis. And then I have this, which is the Tanakh, the uh, stone edition that is the art scroll, sometimes called the art scroll, which is the Orthodox tra- uh, tradition. Those are the two that I happen to have on my desk now, because those are, those, those are the ones that I'm studying with my, my 15 year old daughter. Um, uh, when we started this new year, this new cycle of, of, of Torah study. Um, and, 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 you know, I, uh, those are the two extremes, if you will, of, of reading Torah. But to me, Reading with the different lenses and the different perspectives is what makes it so amazing. I, I look, there is a problem of authority. If, if if the Torah has authority, you know who who decides that it has authority, and and this is this is tough because I I mean, what religious authority? Do I have anyways? I mean, if I tell people, let's just say I tell people that the Torah is in there or God, let's say I believe that. Let's say I, I talk, we, I don't have that authority anyways as a rabbi anymore. I mean, there was a time when people said the rabbi says, no, nobody says that anymore. I mean, not in the 90% of the Jewish world, it's not is not living under under a rabbinic authority under a Rebbe or under a, a, a rabbi who's who's literally Posek, who's somebody who literally gives R- legal religious and binding decisions i wouldn't even say religious decisions binding decisions on people's lives i don't do that, and so for me to say that i wouldn't even be consistent with with what I can do within my environment so i i i um my my goal is to have people Engage in 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 interaction with the Torah, and it's interesting because actually, um, I was just looking to see what day I'm going. I'm going to the Masters College. I go there every two years to help with their world religion class and to try to have the students there. Learn a little bit about uh, how we read it in Judaism. I, I'm more than anything always looking for opportunities to teach, including this opportunity, this forum here. And and I'll and as uh, especially Ronnie knows, I'll teach if two people are there. Um, I'll teach if one person's there because that's what I feel called to do. When we talk about why do I do what I do? Why, why am I called to do this? It's it's essentially to be a teacher, and that's what rabbi means. The rabbi means teacher. It doesn't necessarily mean authority i mean i guess if you teach with authority or your people look at you for for guidance in that way it might mean more authority but i'm there to teach i'm there really to guide people and i'm there to help people use torah to integrate the wisdom and the and the lessons and the values into their lives so that their lives are better and so that the world is better because i do believe I believe, and this is one of the reasons I say I'm willing to go to the mat for this. I'm willing to say that if people lived by Torah principles and Torah values, the world would be a better place. I really believe that. I don't know how to say that other than that.
2: I I, I completely agree with you, but and and, no, not but the rubber meets the road in a very practical way in America today. If I believe and and I do believe that politics should ultimately answer to a moral code. That politics should not only be about national self-interest, but it should be about standing for something that's moral and ethical. And that code comes from the Bible. And if the Bible is not authoritative or Torah isn't, authoritative i'm standing on a, a on a foundation of, of sand and and that's what concerns me
0: i see that's where you you now have gone again i think too far to the extreme it's it's uh, it isn't uh, it isn't that simple that if it's not if it's not literally from god then it's not then it doesn't mean anything because what 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 i what i mean at least my take on this is that that we live in a world of people i mean the world a lot of things but but in the end we're interacting with people no one's ever going to agree 100% with everybody else if my moral authority is the torah and someone else's moral authority is some other book if i if i if i don't believe that there's ultimate truth in their work as well and there might be there might be dangerous stuff in their book. And there's the dangerous stuff in my Bible. So if I don't understand that that we're trying to get to a ultimate truth, then then I don't have then I don't believe I have any moral authority either. And I and I believe that this is that look, this is this is one of my I'm I've started to articulate this a little bit more in the last few years. Um I believe that Judaism's one of the one of Judaism's greatest gifts to the world has been the work that Judaism has had since the beginning fighting against idolatry. Idolatry. If people say, "Well, what are the principles of Judaism?" I'd say family and and life. You know, and that and that at the end of the day, we're trying to advance life and 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 uh, you know, it's not just be fruitful and multiply, obviously, but be fruitful and multiply and protect. As you're moving as you're moving forward, but every generation getting better, it's kind of like the hope for family that your kids will do better that you know, all those things I think that's one of Jewish, the Jewish people's greatest value is is moving forward and and looking towards the future and that and that it, we have a responsibility that we have to protect life almost above everything. But the other issue is fighting against idolatry and Judaism has been fighting against idolatry since Abraham. And that is what we say is, is what makes Judaism different, but idolatry isn't just idols. It's not just other gods. It wasn't just Zeus or Ra. every generation. We fight against idolatry. And unfortunately, sometimes the Torah becomes an idol. Sometimes tradition becomes an idol. Because if you tell me what the Torah says, and it's only this way, that's an idol, folks. If people don't say, I understand the Torah this way, this is the way that this is what I've learned from the Torah. If I tell you what God looks like, and I say, and I like to say, this is my favorite, this is my first Bible if i think that the bible is that god looked like this then this is an idol my look my issue with with other faiths or other traditions that in, that that have perpetrated idolatry some of the ones that, that try to and I, I, we can think i don't want to name them or out them but the religions that that perpetrate Um, idolatry in some cases the most are the ones who say they don't believe in idolatry the ones that say idolatry is is wrong idolatry isn't just a statue it is literally an ideology or a belief system that is willing to kill somebody rather than protect life and 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 uh again what is an idol when when those people would sacrifice to baal a child they believed in it. They didn't. They didn't think they were doing anything inhumane. They thought they were doing something great. If you can cross that line, you're worshiping an idol. And if you're willing to strap a bomb to yourself and get on a plane to kill people, or uh, into a crowded uh, marketplace to kill you, that's an idol. You've now you're now an idol worshiper. And and this is, again, unfortunately, something that we have in our generation, too. And sometimes it's done by the people who claim that they're that they're fighting idolatry or that they're believing in God or that they hate idols. No, you don't hate idols. You're you're a, you're an idol worshiper. And so this is this is a big thing for me is, 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 again, if I if I write a book, it might be called and there are other books that have been called this is smashing the idols because. Uh, my theology, and this is why I don't talk about theology in very concrete terms a lot. I don't want to tell people what my image of God is, because then it becomes their idol. I don't want somebody to say, well, you know, Rabbi Mark says God is this. Well, I'm now just giving you my idol. I've now created you. I've created an idol that you need to worship. I can tell you this is what I th- this is how I approach God. This is how I this is my philosophical underpinnings. And you know what? That's all I can tell you, because otherwise I've just given you an idol. So so now
2: now I'm going to I'm going to make the same mistake I made two other times and go all the way off the deep end and uh, conflate a lot of things. Uh, But is it idolatry when people profess one set of beliefs? And support a political figure who rips children away from their parents. Uh, listen,
0: uh, so I so if we want to now go into politics, this is this is a good segue. This is a good place to go, because well, I do believe that what we're seeing right now in our country is a a very critical moment where we're identifying what idolatry is in this country. Because guess what? Patriotism beca- can become an idol. Because when somebody says that the office of president, that a president can do or say anything that they want because they're president, you've now made the president an idol. You're worshiping an idol. So some people call it a cult. I call it an idol. I mean, you can call whatever you want. It's clearly wrong. And this is what happens uh, to a society when it becomes, uh, and again, people talk about commercialism and uh, and capitalism and and worship of money. Okay, those are... People have been saying that for a long time. That's an obvious thing. That's an easy thing to fall back into. What are we willing to sacrifice? If we're willing to sacrifice our family or our lives for money, but also it is, it, 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 we've seen the, the again, what I cult of personality, which become an idol and people are literally willing to sacrifice their their uh, their common sense. They're willing to sacrifice other beliefs that are critical and core and, and fundamental for for this idol and this is we've we've not seen this as critically as as we have in the last uh in the last few years um it, it, i would say some of this some of this was happening before some of it was in the background but it's reached a point now where it's clearly reached ahead right and and it is it is to use that that uh <laughs> it is, use that analogy to to do It's 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 a great it's a great pimple on the face of America right now. And I I hope it pops and is done because it is it has gotten the worst. Obviously, everybody says it's 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 about the way people talk to each other and everything else. That's another issue, too. I mean, it conflates and it goes into that. But we've really gotten to a point where we become idol worshipers in this country. And it's it, it's not everybody, but there are people on all sides now who have literally taken to excuse their political candidate for horrible behavior because they're their political candidate. And so it, it's it's – uh, yeah, it's it's very disconcerting and it really has been eye opening for me. It really has been a, a time for me to um, to kind of think about um, what my values are politically and what I'm willing to, um, you know, where I'm willing to um, w- what I'm willing to do and what I'm willing to say.
1: So I, sh- I should point out that we're recording this on Friday, October 23rd, and this is probably being released on November 7th. So by the time this is released, there we might be living in a very different world, um, but- uh, Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so Trump is really interesting because as extreme of a character as he is, he he's a reflection of our culture, a reflection of our collective, what what we collectively actually value. I just, I, I've been, I've gotten pushback from friends from church. Um, and, and that's a whole other conversation that I am will extrapolate a lot over the course of this podcast, but the, well, what about, what about all the good that he's done for Israel? You know, and there's a list of Accomplishments. You know, he lowered taxes and he did this and he did that. But for the purposes of ours, one can make an argument that he was a friend for Israel. So my question is number no, one, do you
0: No, no, wait. Let me let me stop you right there. Well, that's that's my that's question. Not, that's do you think ar- he that's was? Not, that's not really an argument. That is without a doubt, no president has given the nation of Israel more security or more of what it wants and more of what it needs. Than Trump, nobody. I, I I don't know how anybody can logically argue the argument. The only argument you can make is that he's given Israel so much that it's like a kid who gets you know dessert for every meal, and then uh, but it's not good for them because it's gonna it's gonna hurt their tummy, right? You know, it's not it's not really nutrition. That is an argument that people make in an, in an, in a serious way that if Israel gets everything it wants, then Israel doesn't become a, a good partner in the Middle East. I understand that. I would say when it comes to that that Israel has negotiated and has behaved in a way that's not really realistic for 70 years in the sense that Israel's been held to a double standard and Israel has had to fight with its hands tied behind its back for way too long. So if there's overcompensation now, I get it, but it's not it, it'll take years for Israel ever to get, you know, to to get back to uh, have been treated like a normal nation, and it's still not by most of the world. So. I, I I hear the counter argument and people will say, yeah, but a peace tree, peace tree with Bahrain and UAE, which never had a, a war, open war with Israel is not important. That's not true because the reality is, is Israel signing peace treaties with Muslim countries, especially the Muslim countries that finance Islam and and Islamic philosophy and madrasas and Islamic life in many countries. It's very important for Israel to have good relationships with them. and it's And it is a it is a game changer. So it's just not true. The problem I have is I used to think of myself as literally a single issue voter, that I would literally go to the poll and say, this per, to the ballot box and say, I can't vote for this person as much as I like them because they're not strong enough on Israel. I've done it before. I, it's not a theoretical. I've done it before. I did not vote for Obama in 2012 because of Israel. And there were things that I liked that he I, th- about him there were things that I thought were very very presidential and very important uh, but there were other things that I d- I, I, I didn't like I I there are there a lot of things ab- about Obama I didn't like but what what didn't push me in that direction everybody assumed I'm, I'm a Republican because I didn't vote for him I did vote for him in 2008 by the way There are a lot of people like me, by the way, as much as I think that uh, it's strange. I'm actually I represent a good 20 percent of the population that did a kind of a similar thing. I I didn't vote for Trump in, in 2016, and I didn't vote for him for the very reasons that have been borne out by by his presidency. But I have a problem. The single issue vote. I couldn't vote for the president that's given me everything that I want for Israel. I couldn't do it.
1: So that's the follow up question,
2: Pop. So in other words that the, you've already answered the, the the question in other words granted what that Trump has been the best friend Israel has had in the White House okay grant well, granted um, is he worth it
0: well it's it's I think it's a I think that's part of it but it's even a bigger question Do, does, does supporting him and making excuses for him does it undermine my character and my values as, as an American and as a, as a human being. And right. so it's very hard for me to – it's very hard for me to uh, – as somebody who believes in justice and fairness, and I really do. I mean one of my biggest issues like on a, – on a, if you pull aside you know, Israel and, – and, and by the way, there are things, as I just said, one of the things I don't like about the way Israel is treated is it's not fair and so my my feeling of justice for israel that israel gets held up to 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 do you know for in a way that's just not it's just not it's not fair and it's not logical and it's not right that's one of the reasons why i'm so passionate for israel but when i see an individual who has so much power and who's been given so much responsibility treat Individuals and people and whether it's, you know, the easy stuff is to talk about kids in cages, but literally every American, every American is affected by the behavior of this person. And, and it's not, it's not one thing. And it's not, it's not saying, well, it's the stuff that he campaigns with, or it's the stuff that he says, it's the way he's lived his life. I didn't like the guy when he when I first saw him as the owner of the New Jersey, New York generals. I didn't I I, I, that's probably the first time I'd ever heard of him. I growing up on the on the West Coast. I didn't know. I didn't know Trump's. But I I saw him then. I said, is this a cartoon character? And this isn't real. And so I I I never, never uh, liked the way he talked to people. I never liked, I never found it funny. I never found, I never found what he added to our culture to be worth. You know, there's humor that I, I, I'm not a prude and I'm not somebody who doesn't like humor. I'm, I'm as, especially Ronnie knows, I'm very capable of saying something inappropriate, but there's a difference in the sense that I, I don't ever try to humiliate somebody. I never try to, and if I've done it, I'm very upset about it afterwards. I'll humiliate myself, but I don't want to humiliate at all anyone else. Causing shame for somebody else is one of the biggest fears that I have all the time, all the time. That I'll say something that that somebody told me that I shouldn't say, or that I, or that I, um, or that I humiliated somebody. Either you know, by making fun of them in a way that I thought was friendly, but it wasn't. I, I hate that, but. That being said, uh, I I can't imagine how how this behavior is tolerable for uh, a teacher at school, uh, uh, a pastor, um, uh, you know, uh, a city council person, uh, but but the president of the United States, who's who's re- who's representing all of us. There has to be a point where you say, but but he's affecting all of us. He's he is there to represent us all. And so his actions affected me. And and so I, I I can't I can't look at this and say, As some of of the people in the Jewish community and some people, especially in the evangelical community, that love Israel and that love what Trump has done for Israel, I can't do this. I can't make excuses for it. And just I mean, I made this point. I registered as a Republican last year. I I register as a Republican because I vote Republican a lot. I mean, it's not – I don't know if it's 50-50. I don't know what. But I register as a Republican because as a Republican, it's more important for me to say this isn't okay. that this behavior is not acceptable. This is the exact opposite of what a party that has conservative values – which I have a lot of conservative values – I I believe in in protecting people's liberties. I don't believe that the the government's job is to redistribute wealth. I believe that people. I got news for you. I I I hear, I hear that healthcare is a right. I I, I cringe at that because I think about what human rights are. I I have a I have a very I have a very uh, sincere and. And um, I have a very firm belief in human rights. I will fight to the death for someone's human rights. Honestly, it doesn't have to be a Jewish person or an American. I would if somebody said someone's human rights are being violated in some other part of the world, I would go and fight for those. I wouldn't fight for. Your right to health care. I wouldn't. Will I wouldn't be willing my life. To, well, human rights to me are a serious, serious issue. So I cringe at that kind of stuff when I hear when when I heard Biden say that last night. But again, in the totality of things, I I do believe that there has to be uh, there has to be uh, uh, our leadership has to has to remember that they're that they're they're representing us and that when someone speaks for me. That, that, that affects me, that, that there is a there is a symbiotic relationship between our leadership and who we are as people. And no one has done more to diminish that in so short a time as Trump.
1: I think I think what's happened is he has institutionalized and elevated a trait and a set of cheers in a way that define large groups of people that he's not a part of and defines and villainizes, mischaracterizes um, and and attacks. So a lot of folks that we know, individuals that we know, have now been able to justify behavior that is Trump-like, let's call it what it is, whether it's in day-to-day interactions, or talking to a friend, not being directly mean to that friend, but talking about others in an unkind, uncivil way, you know, or a stupid Facebook comment with a meme, you know, that is adversarial contentious um, that, that, that is the rhetorical equivalent of, 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 you know, throwing a rock at someone, but it's, it's, it's justified because, they're throwing a rock at someone that they've identified as part of a group that they have determined are enemies. Um, so that, that's- Less than human. Less than human. They've dehumanized that- Less individual. than fully human. So they're, fight, they're fighting the good fight. And I think they're cheering Trump on because he's fighting that fight. Um, and, and that makes it easier to be dismissive of all of the other shenanigans.
0: Well, I, I hope I hope you're right, and I hope I I hope people identify that, and I hope that the 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 that when we when this is aired, people will say that that it was repudiated, you know. And I hope that people say that. I hope that there's enough people that come out and say, "Look, I liked his policies. I like this," but I I hope there's a lot of those swing voters who say I couldn't vote for him because of the way he treats people. I hope that that's what happens. So this is the possibility that we have of people saying this, this kind of stuff doesn't work. You know, it really has to be repudiated and it has to be repudiated in in its totality. The problem is, is does it get repudiated and say the last four years we have to reset? And I, obviously when it comes to those things that I think were important, especially you know what? You know when it comes to Israel, I hope it doesn't get reset. My hope, and when we talk about you know like what I hope will happen for the future, where we are a year from now or two years from now, I hope that that Trump has swung the pendulum back so much towards uh, a pro-Israel um, uh, feeling in the in the uh, State Department and and in our leadership. That, and I hope we don't have just a full pendulum swing back the other way. I hope that he's moved the dial, if you will. So rather than a pendulum swinging back, that he's moved the dial further to Israel's side so that Israel doesn't have to fight its way back, even within the United States, because it did happen. And I again, I was I, I do feel I was right in, in, in not voting for Obama in, in, in 2012 because he by the time he left, he had really pulled the plug on on um, on Israel's uh, standing and ability to count on on the United States to back it up in uh, the United Nations and in, in world forums and uh, in its negotiations. It did not put Israel in a good situation. And it's not that Israel, you know, needs help all the time from the United States. But the problem is, is that the vast majority of the world, and hopefully now there's those countries like UAE and Bahrain who aren't going to just snap back. And, and Sudan. Vote Sudan. Every time something comes up for Israel in the United Nations, there always were going to be 70, 80 countries that would vote against Israel. And that's, that's. I mean, that's not that's not right. That's not just. And, and Obama did not... He did, didn't I mean, he got to the point where he literally said, we're not going to we're not going to have Israel's back anymore. So that was that was a low point in, in Israel relations uh, that about 20 years, it was about a 20 year low point uh with Obama when he finally went out. And again, people say, well, this, the military spending, Israel still got the uh, the military uh, aid from, from the United States. That's all true. But there's also an issue of where Israel is in, in its standing in the world, and quite frankly, with peace. Because if people on the right and left really want... Uh, Israel to be strong. They want Israel to have peace with its neighbors. You have to. You can't say, "Well, Israel can just be strong militarily and it'll be okay." Because eventually there will be a war that Israel can't win for whatever reason. There will. You can't rely on on always winning a war. You have to have normal relations with your with your neighbors, and that situation is better today than it was. Four years ago, it's undeniable, and we hope it continues to move that way. And it's not just—I I agree. I, it's not just Israel with peace treaty. I agree with you, Mark,
2: um, but I don't want to relitigate Obama. Just the one point I'll make is, I wish Romney had won only because then we wouldn't have Trump. <laughs> but that—that—but that, that, that's another story. One of your strengths, because um, I know you as a rabbi, I attend. Temple Beth and me, when we're in California on Friday nights, I go to your classes and I consider you one of my friends. One of your strengths is that until today, and I've known you for, I don't know, close to 15 years now, maybe, maybe 12 years. I had no idea what your political affiliation was or whether you support Trump, didn't support Trump. If you I had no idea. So that's a strength in a religious leader. But I also see it, I I, I also see it as a failure in the sense that it values, Torah-based values are so crucial, um, and you see the impact of a person like Trump on the culture and morality of our nation the way you do,
0: how could you not
2: make your feelings clear from the pulpit?
0: Well, that's why I did that's why I finally did. I, the, 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 this era, um, and I, you know, I listen, I've been, I I've made it. And again, I've made it my goal to make sure that people of all political parties and affiliations. And as you know, in our classes, very, 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 very diverse group. It's one of the few groups of, of people coming together in our country, honestly, where, where it's a, it's maybe sometimes a 50, 50 split. And I have to, I have to be, uh, Careful about about saying things that uh, that offend people, but I'll tell you, I've made it pretty clear that I I find this guy's behavior offensive. I think one of the reasons why I had to actually publicly kind of uh, identify and out myself as a Republican now, and people know that I have friends of all political uh, that I that I have friendships and I and I don't I don't endorse any candidates, but that I speak about about those things. I I only have come out against um and spoken officially on things where it was the candidate or the or the or the official's behavior which needed to be addressed not their politics so so again a part of the issue is is i do believe that like i can find things in in someone's politics that i in their agenda that i that i like i'm not going to dismiss someone whole in their totality because i don't agree with the party or I don't agree with one of their positions. It's tough. That's the harder thing is to be a moderate or to be, I don't even call myself a moderate. If I, if I balance somebody's, what they stand for and what I think is going to be their priorities, that then I have to make my decision. The issue is, is if someone is, is promoting racism or if they're promoting, if they're promoting intolerance, if they're promoting hatred, that's when I have to say, I don't Whatever else you have to say, I don't want to hear it anymore. Because, because you can't come from a from a place of hate and have any value to our to our political discourse. It, once you're once you've affiliated with hate, what more is there to say? There's you, you're you you can not there. There's no. I'm not going to defend pieces of your agenda anymore. Uh, and that's why, as much as I say, look, I like what Trump has done. I'm not defending that. I can't. I can't say well. If I look at the totality of what he does, honestly, and there are definitely things that I don't like on his political agenda. If I looked at the totality of what he does and what he did as a politician, I would probably have voted differently this year. I didn't because at the point of saying this person – and again, I'm not the only religious – Person to do this. Obviously, there's fundamentalist Christians uh, that have done it as well. Not our faith. Uh, You you can't. There's not. I'm not going to pick and pick and, and 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 weigh the 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 political agenda. There's nothing to be said if you're promoting hatred and if you are running on a platform that appeals to people solidly because of of hatred there's nothing more to say there's no we're not talking politics anymore and so that's one of the reasons why it wasn't why i had to speak out and i didn't just do it with trump i want to make it real clear for people who live in santa clarita They know that over the last few months, I've taken to the city council meetings and I have I have attacked Bob Keller at every one of our city council meetings. I've said I cannot stand silent anymore while this guy finishes out his term and he's finishing out the term. He's got two more weeks or two weeks till the election. He's not running. He's he's not running anymore. I had to identify and identify myself as a Republican. when I did it. Who is he? Who who is he? and, And why is that an issue? For those who are not in Santa Clarita, who don't, who haven't heard of this person, and by the way, people have heard of him outside of Santa Clarita. He became a national, uh, definitely a California-wide uh, um, problem, because ten years ago he famously got in front of a of a rally and said, "If if if making me if if um, being tough on immigration makes me a racist, then I'm a proud racist." He said it and. People saw it 10 years ago and said, "How how is this guy elected? He has continued um, He's continued to be a stain on our community, and I, I had to finally do something. It was really the younger people in this community who, who – who, I don't think they – I wouldn't say they shamed me into it, but they really – because nobody said you should speak out now. But after seeing them have the courage to speak out at the city council meetings, I said, you know what? I should have been doing this every – I should have been the, the – Prophetic voice in the wilderness, coming to every meeting and saying this. And so, for the last few meetings, I've written a I've written a, a little speech that I give at the city council meetings, talking about his racism and talking about this community deserves better because it's the same it's the same position. I don't whatever Bob Keller has to say about our community, and I know he cares about our community. He's fought for veterans and for veterans housing. Some good things he's done. The point is it's moot. There's nothing more that needs to come out of his mouth other than I'm a proud racist. And and you put Trump in the same category. Yes. But, but see, the problem is, is that is that our our society has now gotten into a point where we where we feel that that there are as long as a person agrees with me politically or, or philosophically, that I'm going to defend them. I I don't get it. I to me that that goes against what's great about America, what's by the way, to me, what's great about Judaism because again, these people otherwise become an idol. These people literally become something you can carry around and say, yeah, he's an idol. I, we we look up to him and we respect him, and we don't care what he has to say because he's mm-hmm. he's helping us. so i I don't t- to me. I, I, I will not weigh in. And, and again, as, as much as I did that, I did other stuff that upset Democrats. I did a lot of stuff that, that upset Democrats during this last political cycle too, but I didn't. And that was because of an agenda and because of things that were very critical, crucial to me. But when it comes to behavior of political leaders, I'm not going to stand by and, and, uh, and, 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 and I'm not going to be silent and, um, And I had personal experiences with Bob Keller, where he said things to me that were clearly anti-Semitic and came from an anti-Semitic place. And I and I told people, but, you know, I should have been there at every meeting saying there's a racist and anti-Semite that's sitting on the city council. Why is nobody doing anything about this? I should have been there at every meeting for the last 10 years. I'm I, that's a that that was a failing that, on my part. I mean, again, I have other things to do. I have I have to I can't every two weeks on a Tuesday be there, but I should have done more. I should have I should have been there every week reminding people that this that this stain was 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 on our city council.
1: This has been a very clarifying time. I know for me and for a lot of people, one of the things that I've become a lot more clear about is that character really does matter. And this idea that you can't know what's in someone's heart. That's bullshit. You know, when words matter and, you know, in the New Testament, there's this uh, at the beginning of one of the Gospels, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Words matter. Words are indications of actions. Actions are indications of behavior. Behavior is indications of, of character. So words really do matter and and we have plenty of words that give us evidence about this individual's character. So for me character really does matter. If I can't get past that character if this person is essentially has is essentially representing the opposite of those things that Many of us can agree our virtues. Many of us should be able to agree that being honest is a virtue. Many of us should be able to agree that. Um, all of
2: us, not many of us, all of us.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, that um, pridefulness, that greed, that malice, that these things are not virtues. So if that's our starting point, I, I don't want to talk about the policies. You know, there are others, um, Bernie Sanders or AOC, you know what? They actually seem like perfectly lovely people, um, virtuous people. Now we can talk about the policies and I'll never vote for them because of the policies, (laughs) you know, but, but at least I can get past the character standpoint, you know? And I think these things have become muddled. We, We think, Oh, you know, we have a way of, of lying to ourselves. He's a nice person and he's fighting for us and look at his kids and, you know, No, no, no. You want to look at his kids? Really? No, 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 no. We we have to start with character, you know, and then we can look back at uh, when I first started voting in the early nineties and, you know, I might've voted differently for different people along the way if I had that clarity, you know? So, yeah. If I, if I can't get past character, I don't care how many roads you built, um, no, you, how, wh- no, what your tax right. policy it, it's is. It's a
0: very important point. And actually, and again, to to take the you know to make sure that everybody gets embarrassed and humiliated. I mean, honestly, the the uh, the president who did more to to take down the the character and the and the behavior of a president was 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 Bill Clinton. I mean, yeah. we didn't get to Donald Trump from from square one again everybody can talk about the behavior of presidents behind closed doors everybody knows the stories of Lyndon Johnson and and John Kennedy and 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 I mean we, we know I mean horrible stories about again uh, even even Dwight Eisenhower had skeletons in his closet the reality though was is that people didn't it wasn't acceptable for people to, to uh, celebrate that and to talk about it and to make excuses for it. People had some sense of, of, you know what, maybe if somebody's personal behavior isn't great, let's not celebrate it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not joke about it. And, and again, unfortunately, Clinton did more to, to kind of bring that down than any other president. And it continues. And it's, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't come to uh, um, an understanding that, that character has to be part of that, of, of our leaders and what we expect from our leaders and especially the president who is essentially the ultimate leader. This is the person that we say, this is our best. This is, we, even if we can't all agree on it through the process of primaries and through the process of, of serving for many years, hopefully, that somebody has proven their, their character. And again, unfortunately now there's so many ways for the, for their flaws to be exposed, but you know, for, for, i mean that's the problem is that is that you know we we number one expect them to to have these flaws and on the other hand we expect somebody to that, that it should be outed and, and in the end you know, our excuses that well it doesn't really matter it seems it seems to me that
2: the very qualities that make somebody a successful politician argues against being a moral ethical person oh, you know stop. so no no, no let me finish um, No, I I believe that. Um, That said, to flaunt
1: immoral behavior in an arrogant way
2: has an impact on the culture at large. Mm, Right. You know? Um, So since you brought up Clinton, I'm sorry I voted for Clinton. I should have voted for Dole. You know, at this point in my life, I would have voted. I couldn't bring myself to vote for Bill Clinton, but that's because I've become religious, which brings us back to where we started. What gives me the confidence to overlook policy and to hold character up as the first criteria Um, is the fact that I'm a religious person, that I take this stuff seriously. And that I do think that the Torah is authoritative, maybe not inerrant, but authoritative.
1: But also because on any individual policy, I can't say that I'm an expert in Israel Bahrain relations. I can't say that. And by the way, my cousins who served in the military in Israel never said we're really worried about Bahrain. You made a mention of it before, Mark, but, 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 if I trust the person who is negotiating a peace deal with Bahrain, if I trust their integrity, their intellectual curiosity, their intellectual honesty, I have, even if I, as an amateur, someone who's, who's removed from that, it doesn't know as much about that. Even if in my amateur way come to a different conclusion than they do, I can trust the process by which they arrived at their conclusions. It's like Obama you know, he, he did he had a lot of policies that from far removed and as uh, you know, I usually just knew a little bit of the surface of the issue. Sometimes I came to a different conclusion than he did. But based on his public virtues, I trusted, OK, I can live with that. I don't think he you know, I don't think he's doing something malicious and evil to try to undermine the entire system even though he had a higher set of taxes or something. Yeah, uh, I'm not being very specific, but you you understand what I mean.
0: You're, so you're right. Now, now I will tell you something that I thought about. I actually spoke about it at High Holidays and I didn't develop it, but it's definitely something that I thought about. Israel is a very interesting situation uh, politically. They have a prime minister who's the person in charge of the government, Rosh HaMem he's the head of the government. And they have a president. And the president is elected for, is uh, chosen by the Knesset. So the 120 members of the Knesset vote on who will be the um, on the president. And the president serves a seven-year term, and he's he's essentially ceremonial. He goes to the funerals and, and weddings of other nations. And his main role is to be a unifier. And the reason why I talked about it at the High Holidays is the president – Like the king. Yeah, the current president of Israel, except he's elected, and he's a, usually a former politician. So Reuven Rivlin, who is the current president of Israel, got on – the networks of Israel two days before Rosh Hashanah on Wednesday night and said, I apologize to you on behalf of our government, we failed you. Why? Because Israel went through a second lockdown that week and said, we didn't do our job. You look to us for protection, you look to us for guidance, and we failed you. We couldn't protect you. And so we let you down. Now, and I said this, I said this because I always like to share apologies. I said that apology, what if somebody in America? What if one of uh, what if our president? What if our Amer- one of our American leaders got up in front of the country and said that to us? It's not. We know that's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen now. But because we have the ultimate un- unapologetic person who takes pride in not apologizing. But if we had had, and that's again another horrible character flaw. This is an inability to, to apologize. But if we had a, a leader of our country who could do that. And somebody we could expect the best from, you know, I, I almost think that in the United States today, because of what the, the what both of you have said, that we almost need that as a role. We almost need to elect somebody who can have the job of doing nothing but unifying us while the other person takes care of the day-to-day roles. Now, can we get that in one person? Maybe. I mean, I think people are hoping that Biden will have that as being, a, you know, one of the things he's campaigning on and I think it's smart is I can be a unifier that I want to bring everybody together you know that was his one of his good moments last night was saying, "You know, on inauguration day, I want to tell people, look, I'm representing you, and I want you to, I want you to be able to be proud of." Me. You know, he said the right thing there, which was, "I want to represent everybody," and and I think enough people believe that. And I think that's probably why, if he wins, it'll be because of that, the feeling that people have in this country. A lot of people, a lot of people who are moderates, a lot of people who can go back and forth. And like I said, I like to call myself a moderate, but somebody who can vote either way. That they will say, "Look, I, we need to have that now. We can't have somebody that further, you know, causes dissension and and works towards our, our lesser, our lesser, you uh, know, our lesser angels, if you will." I I I think that if we don't fix this now, though, mm. we may have to have this kind of, of role. And you know, the perfect person for that role. Would have it could have been Joe Biden, you know, could could be a Joe Biden type or the best example I think we've had in the last 20 years is John McCain. John McCain. Yeah. In memory could have been that person to say, look, we're a country where and maybe it needs to be a conservative. Maybe it needs to be a Republican who uh, like a Bob Dole, somebody who's a veteran, someone who has who served our country, you know, who's and that's another thing, too, is, you know, we have people that talk about the military who who. Who don't? I mean, again, for Biden, it's through his sons. But you get, you know, I get, I give you a couple points for that, by the way. But to have people who served our country uh, and have risked their lives for our country, who get up and say, "I'm," this is what I believe our country needs when when we go to war or when we're attacked. To have those kind of uh, those moments, and again, that's what the that's the moment that George that George W. Bush became president and and, and was able to win another election was the way he behaved after 9-11. Everybody knows that's not a secret. We need to have people that has to be part of the presidency. And if it's not part of the presidency, I honestly believe we need to figure out a way to do that and again maybe it's unofficial maybe it's we do a we do a youtube uh, a vote a YouGov poll or whatever and everybody votes for who's going to be our who's going to be our whatever you want to call them the unifier but we need that so badly in this country we need to have somebody that we can look at we can look at to for wisdom probably probably again this is the other issue you know people say well we have 270 plus your 75. Your old people running against each other, but you need to have that kind of wisdom. you need to have that kind of experience and and um, and 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 people have to have that faith in you, that you've seen enough, that you've proved yourself enough. Gosh, I, I think we need that in this country. I mean, I don't know if it has to be official or whether we can find that in our president. In that, in that case, by the way, I hope Colin Powell. Another example:
1: Condoleezza and, Rice
0: and, and Rivlin was was from the was from, but Shimon Peres was president of Israel, and he was on the left. I, I do think that, that interestingly, I think people look to to the right side for that a little bit more because that tends to be the right the the, the strength of the right, which is uh, what we, you know conservative values we look for loyalty. We look, you know, we look for, uh, this idea of tradition, this idea of, of again, um, uh, you know what we'd say are the are the conservative values that that again progressive values tend to be again let's get young ideas let's get new ideas let's get you know let's get uh new thought innovation that maybe again that role that we need to have it needs to have some sagacity and some and some uh experience and maybe you almost need to have somebody who's 60 65 plus to have that role i don't know that i uh, and again I, we don't have that role for a present we do say a person's got to be 35 but you know maybe Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, you know, and again, I think Obama had a lot of, of, a lot of, 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 uh, you know, he was definitely stoic and he was, and he was, you know, he had a a great deal of poise. But, you know, one of my issues with him was that he did not have the experience. He did not have, Mm -hmm. he didn't, he hadn't put in his time. And, and I, I, I believe in experience. I believe in wisdom. Look, if Ronnie says something. I believe it because he's he's put in his time. He's put in his time as a father, as a grandfather, as a teacher, as an administrator, as a educator, as a as as a as a guidance guy, as a, somebody who's helped people. It, so that's, that has value to me. Thank you for that, Mark.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with you.
2: I, I wish you agreed with him when you were 20.
1: <laughs> I don't know if we can do that at the national level, but I do know. That there's a lot of good that we can do on the personal level and at the local level. So on that note, I want folks to be aware of Temple Beth Ami. Uh your your congregation. And it's in Santa Beth, Clarita. In Santa Clarita, it's Templebeth Ami.org. Uh Ami is A M I, right?
0: Yeah, okay. He's my my people. <laughs> Temple of Tem- the house of my people,
1: the house of my people. I also want folks to know about jewishlifefoundation.org. You want to say a little bit about that, Mark?
0: Yeah. So, so JLF, the Jewish Life Foundation, which, uh, which is now might become a big part of my life when my father passed away. And even as he was sick, he was uh, sick with Parkinson's over the last two years. They had a very difficult uh, fight against that. And, uh, and, uh, his, uh, this fight against Louis Body dementia and, and and Parkinson's was was heroic, but but very very tough to watch. So over the last few years, I took I, I've taken over a, a larger role in in the network, <coughs> in JLTV. Excuse me, in the work that JLTV does. Uh, JLTV is the only national Jewish uh, commercial. Television channel channel in the world. You can watch it on jltv.org. But the Jewish Life Foundation raises money to finance the productions of of jlTV, especially the the services. We did a, a wonderful high holiday. I mean, I now I sound like somebody else talking about how wonderful and beautiful it was. But we really did a great high holiday service on a national level. Uh, we actually did our one of our first pandemic time things. We did a Seder, which was really great. You can still see it on YouTube. Uh, our jail now is our is our YouTube channel. We did a great Seder with celebrities and uh, political leaders and different people sharing Passover uh, prayers and and readings. We had Mayan Bialik uh, from Big Bang and, and uh, lots of TV stuff. She did the four questions. Uh, it was a really cool Passover thing. We're going to do something big for Hanukkah. So keep your eyes open for our Hanukkah production. Um, we got some, and we've been we've been promoting and, and kind of keeping people uh, strong with really really wonderful Jewish music and 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 Jewish spirituality uh, through the airwaves. And so the Jewish Life Foundation is committed to that. We also have some partnerships that we're working on with with uh, organizations across across uh, movements and and across uh, the Jewish community and Jewish world. Where we did a wonderful unity concert for the Abu Yadaya, which is the newest. Um, the newest Jewish community in Uganda of, of Jews who uh, people have embraced Judaism in, in Uganda so uh, the Abiyudaya uh, concert we broadcast uh, over the summer and, um, and we're again we're just looking at, at trying to bring Jewish life to uh, and Jewish values to, to the world through, through, the, through the channel and I have to tell you that the, the majority of those who watch and who tune in on a regular basis by far, are Christians. And again, a lot of them are are members of the evangelical community. A lot of them are people who have a deep connection to Israel and to Judaism through that. But the amazing thing is they're not just, it's not just Israel programming. That is, that is uh, what people are watching. They're watching Shabbat services. They're watching high holiday services. And a lot of those people are not from a Jewish background. So it's, it's, it's the first time I think in human history that we actually are broadcasting or, or not, I mean, we're broadcasting it, but we're putting out Jewish spirituality Jewish content and the majority of those that are that are consuming it, that are part of it, are 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 Christians. In this case, again, people who are who are we can say Gentile, the Gentile community. It's probably the first time in 2,000 years that we have situations where the people that are coming in are like that. And and it did happen, by the way. I mean, um, Two thousand years ago, there were a lot of people. We called them God-fearers that were coming to synagogues that were attaching themselves to the Jewish community, and and we may see something that we haven't seen for two thousand years: a lot of people that are attaching themselves to to uh, to that. And we we were working hard. We're working hard to make that happen. And again. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Jewish is the it's quality the,
2: production. I, I can tell you from personal experience. Uh, if you go to the uh, Temple Beth Bethany uh, Facebook page and access the uh, Shabbat service on a Friday night, it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or don't believe in God. You're going to enjoy about a 40 minute experience that will elevate you spiritually and that's done in a completely beautiful, professional, artistic way. And, um, Mark deserves a lot of credit
1: for doing that. Yeah. It's quality, quality production, great music, really, really well
0: done. And by the Uh, way, I have to thank and give credit to those in the, uh, church, uh, Christian church communities who pioneered a lot of that really great, uh, production values and, and, uh, style we've borrowed, we've, Borrowed very greatly from our Christian friends. Uh, again, it's all Jewish content. You know, it's Jewish prayers and stuff. But the mode and the and the technical skill that they brought that they brought to uh, media, we we're, were learning back. So if, if, if Christianity is the child of Judaism, we're learning from our kids.
1: <laughs> Good stuff. Well, speaking of Shabbos, uh, we have to get my it's my dad's on the East Coast. So we got to get him off to Shabbos services. And um, I just really appreciate you doing this, Mark. We'll have to have you back sometime real soon.
0: Thank you. And I, so I can't wish good Shabbos to people, except for except for Ronnie. I'm going to wish good Shabbos. And to Corey, I wish you a good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. But whenever you watch this or wherever you listen to this or wherever you see this and hear it, uh, we just hope that you're, you're as I've been signing off, that you're staying safe, stay healthy and stay positive in the good kind of positive. The, the positive way that you're staying off the uh, staying out of the doctor's office, and out of the hospital. So everybody, uh, again, I'm grateful for the time that we spent together and mark
2: i'll see you in about three and a half weeks and then you'll have to uh, deal with me for another uh, seven months
0: we well, we we don't like it when when the when you return back to your native habitat when the swallows return to Capistrano and the name when my lawn needs mowing the, the natives, <laughs> the return to Santa Clarita, they are really a light to us so
1: thank you good stuff thanks again mark thanks thanks pop Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.